Hi there, it's Craig here, one half of Video Drone with a bit of information about the episode you're about to listen to. So this episode was recorded on the 20th of May 2017. Sadly on the 23rd of May, Roger Moore passed away. Our thoughts go out to his friends and family, and also to those of Bill Paxton who we also pay tribute to in this episode. Now that's out of the way, I hope you enjoy episode 18 of a humble little podcast that we like to call Video Drone. Thanks. Hi, welcome back to Video Drone. My name's Fraser. And my name's Craig. This is episode 18. It certainly is. And we've been missing an action again. Yes, I. After uh, <laughs> previously saying we'll we'll try and get back on the horse yeah. and release more episodes, but hopefully uh, we'll get back to a somewhat regular schedule. Yeah, uh, to give you an soon. idea of the time at the moment, uh, Alien came out last week, the new mm-hmm. one. Covenant. Um, Covenant, yeah. Haven't seen it yet. But we did, we did win the quiz at the Tyneside yes, Cinema. Yes, we did the Alien Ridley Scott quiz and uh, came first and got a plethora of Alien related goodies. Yeah, we did all right. <laughs> can, can you good haul, but more importantly, the free cinema tickets, which we yeah, always like. Exactly. Um, this time round, we're going to the 70s, the 90s, and a couple now. of years ago now. Yeah, basically, because <laughs> we don't know what the name is for yeah, you can't, the teens. It's, it's not the noughties anymore. Yeah, it's so not, exactly. Was it the millennium? I don't yeah, know, what about you say? a couple of years back anyway, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this week we'll be looking at, not not necessarily in this order, mm-hmm. um, Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan, mm-hmm. um, Basil Dearden's The Man Who Haunted Himself, and also the biggie this time, Wes Anderson and the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, we hope you'll join us. Cheers. Right then, so we're back and the first film we're going to look at this week is The Man Who Haunted Himself from mm-hmm. 1970, yep. um, directed by Basil Dearden and starring a pre-007 Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, totally foisted this one on you, Craig, because you've got no <laughs> previous on this. No, not at all. Um, no. But I remember seeing Interesting it as, choice, though. Yeah, it's a bit, bit, bit one out, out of the blue. I remember seeing it as a kid uh, and quite enjoying it. Um, did you see it on TV? Yeah, on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many moons ago. Um, a couple of years ago, network distribution as it is now, not network DVD, I think, reissued it on a sparkling uh, Blu-ray mm-hmm. um, in the proper ratio, etc., um, with all bells and whistles on it. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a nice little release. Um, can you give us a synopsis? Yes. Um, Harold Pelham, a middle-aged businessman, finds himself in bewildering circumstances after recovering from a near-fatal car accident. When he awakes, Pelham finds his life has been turned upside down. He learns he now supports a merger that he once opposed, and that he apparently is having an affair. People claim they have seen him in places he has never been. Does Pelham have a doppelganger, or is he going insane? <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good synopsis, that. Um, I mean, obviously, it's, it's a massive role for Roger Moore, this, because mm-hmm. he carries the whole film absolutely um yeah. although trying to be up, upstaged at one point by freddie jones as a psychiatrist yeah uh, with the dark glasses and everything <laughs> which is just totally like well is over the top and just a total scene stealer but um for most people you i think roger moore is a love hate mm. type relationship as, as an actor yeah. i mean i've never been a particularly big bond fan oh like, um, like in general in you general mean? right in general. okay and um 
But I think that Roger Moore is probably my least favourite one. Really? Think, yeah, like it's just... I think when it comes to Bonds, it depends who was your Bond when you were a kid. Yes, I... Probably. I mean, a lot of people do sort of go back to the default of Connery. Mm-hmm. But obviously, uh, I was brought up in the 70s. First Bond film I went mm-hmm. to see at the pictures was Moonraker. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, I remember my dad taking us along. Well, I think the, some of the first ones that I saw were, were Moore, but I've never really been a big fan of the franchise. And I've always just found him... He's either... I mean, I've seen him in some good roles before. Yeah. But as Bond, I just find him a bit too cheesy. Uh-huh. And then for your eyes only, I don't know if you've seen that or what? A long time, in, in a long time ago. I think I, I think I probably remember enough of it. He's yeah. quite ruthless in it. Mm. He murders people in that. He doesn't yes, just I, knock them out. And there's no sort of yeah, there might be an odd one liner there, but it's you know he's pushing people over cliffs and all sorts of stuff. You know. I suppose the thing about the Bond series in general is the fact that you know have so many different creators involved in things. Mm-hmm. There's all even when the same actors play them, sometimes maybe the character's slightly different. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I mean, on the interpretation. But like you say, I mean, the seventies was the worst for the for the gadgets and like all that overtook yeah. and the big opening set pieces, which I still have. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Oh, I like a bit of Rog, but I'd actually read his um, autobiography a few years back, and I think mm-hmm. in that book he does say this is his, as far as he's concerned, it's his best uh-huh. performance. Well, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, uh-huh. I must say that I've not really seen that much of his film output besides Bond. I've probably seen more of his TV shows. Yeah, and I think he is quite good in some of the shows that uh-huh. he was in. But nine times out of ten, is Roger Moore playing Roger Moore? Yeah, <laughs> which we all like, <laughs> sort of to a degree, love. And I don't, I mean, I don't hate him as an actor, but he's he's definitely far from one of my favourite actors. Yeah. Um, and I had slight reservations, like, uh, going into this, because I've, cause I've, like I said, I've never been a particularly big fan of him. But since I trust your judgment, I thought, <laughs> well, and it's just, and I've heard the title a lot of times, but to be honest with you, I don't think I equated the title with it being a Roger Moore film. Uh-huh. I remember hearing the title and knowing it was a psychological sort of uh, thriller. Yeah. But not, I don't think I necessarily knew until he sort of uh, gives the, the uh, disc that it was a Roger Moore movie. Um, it's based on a book, isn't it, called The Case of Mr. Pelham? Yes. Um, and also, I'm pretty sure the director is like an Elon um, sort yeah, of uh, comedy he, he's, director. Yeah, he's, like, he's got a sort of very varied career. I think this was the last film he made before he passed on. Right. Um, and again, but I mean, to me... This reminds me of the old uh, Tales of the Unexpected, mm. Twilight yes. Zone. It's that got that sort of yeah, a tone to it. Yeah, it definitely has that sort of vibe where yeah. like um, it's not that concerned with the hows and whys. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all about the sort of like the build up, yeah, to the rug exactly. pull, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. which is um, what I enjoy. I suppose. Exactly, yeah. I mean, um, so we should probably go into a little bit about you know the sort of uh, structure of the film and how it begins. So obviously, as we mentioned, he has a car accident at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Um, but like you say, well, when you first see the car, you see another car sort of superimposed yes, over it, for, over like it. ghostly for a second. Yes, I. Um, and it's funny the way that is handled because it shows you the fact there's two distinctly different cars and versions of them. Mm-hmm. It's like but, two different sort of the light and shade of of, mm-hmm. of the man himself sort of thing. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. And I can imagine when you if you went to see this at the cinema when it first came out, it would have been a very curious opening. Not really, if you didn't really know much about the movie it would have been a bit confusing at the beginning initially yeah. when he first appears but you see the um the other pelham looking quite sort of like crazy when yeah. in like driving really erratically like uh-huh. without any regard for anyone else yeah yeah and, and then obviously that leads to a crash with uh-huh. a, with his other self seemingly um 
and he ends up on the operating table <laughs> in the worst operating table you've ever seen it's like, yes. there's no equipment in that room it's like oh my god was it that bad then or was it just no money for the special effects and things I must admit I was thinking I was thinking the same thing I was thinking god I really hope it wasn't that horrible looking back then it was yeah. like I would never want to go for surgery uh-huh. it's like how my mother got through pregnancy and stuff like that you know what I mean it's like oh I would like to think that it was the fact that they didn't really have uh, much budget for yeah. surgical equipment so they had about 20 tools on the table <laughs> exactly and just like and the machine that goes ping and that, that was about it which actually again is part of the plot as well yes because he turned because when we see um, his heart monitor there's two heartbeats isn't there for, for, yeah because he dies on the table but obviously they bring him back to life um, with the limited resources, limited resources that have yeah um, <laughs> But I mean, yeah, it's, the film starts off um, sort of quite slowly, but like it really picks up pace yes, once it, it gets so far through. Because I can imagine for a lot of people in a modern audience these days, they'd give it off an hour and like, nah, yeah. no happening here. Like, mm, exactly. Right. And it's very, it's very British, but I think that's what appeals to me. It's quite quaint. It's very of yeah, its time. Definitely. And just to see how London was then, and you could imagine them all dressed up. And he's, yeah. he's practically like Mr. Bradford and Bingley, isn't he? With well, it? very much as like pinstripe suits, yeah. umbrellas, and bowler hats. Uh-huh. And I can imagine that Americans probably like. I can imagine that some Americans still today think that we're very much like that. Exactly. Kind of very stereotypical British society, uh-huh. like you say, the sort of Bradford and Bingley logo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I've got to mention a lot, um, lots of rich mahogany. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Uh, I've got to mention that Roger Moore's eyebrow acting masterclass begins less than 10 minutes into the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, with him giving his eyebrow Zola. Excellent, yeah. <laughs> but he's really good when he sort of, the character starts to, well, not lose the plot. He does really, he, he does yeah. do a good job. I mean, I'm, um, I'm joking about that. But oh, yeah, but he, no, but I, I even said to you, this, this, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I mean, there's even, there's even a line in the film that alludes to James Bond. Yes, and this is a couple of years before he made. Uh, I think it was Live and Let Die was the first one, but obviously I think by this time mm. he must have been. He must have known. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. And I mean, it's. I think I read some things uh, that's that sort of theorised that this was the sort of movie that gave him the the break to like play Bond. You know, people yeah. saw him in this and were like, right. He actually he's can got act. the chops yeah. for it. He's yeah. not just a pretty boy. <laughs> but I mean, I think he actually took a pay cut. Um, for this film as well because it was done on a budget so it was maybe a script he really liked and something was yeah, important something or... that he, he thought right that's good it's a dual mm. role as it were eventually well yeah I mean I suppose mm. it is yeah um, but uh, yeah he really, he really does, does sell it um, in um, previous episodes we've talked about uh, films that use the sort of superimposed backgrounds for car scenes oh yeah and like that's very plainly obvious in this but then there's this really ill-advised like uh, zoom out in the opening scene where he's, where he's driving erratically uh-huh. and it does this big zoom out so you see the whole car against the superimposed background that yeah. looks so much worse <laughs> and you just think like you should have just left it as it was it's that that it's going one step too far yeah, that it's just, back yeah because uh-huh. the whole car against that background looks terrible whereas you can just about get away with, with it. it yeah as you would when um, there's uh-huh. sceneries going by I mean, in the back of the window you know it's even something that uh, Tarantino still likes to do yes he does it's, I, uh, it's, it's a big thing and I don't mind it because I, I think I, I grew up with it and exactly. you, you did as well and I it's, suppose it's almost like a kind of um, how can I put it it's like Tarantino's very much about like nodding back to old school movies yeah. and stuff uh-huh. so I think he enjoys the fact that it's kind of got this what would you call it, like hyper realism? Like yeah. a lot of it's realistic, then parts of it totally aren't like, uh-huh. on purpose. And then you got like the sort of score as well, sort of pretty groovy and stuff. So, what we should mention? We've already already mentioned Freddie Jones, mm-hmm. but um, the girl who plays um, Pelham's wife, Eve mm-hmm. Hildegard Neal. Do you know who she is? I've heard the name. I'm trying to remember. She's Mrs. Brian Blessed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> 
That's amazing. That poor suffering woman, long suffering woman. But yeah, um, bless Speaking her. of his wife, there's a bit in, earlier in the movie where he's leaving to go to work and uh-huh. he gives her a kiss and it's like the, the, the scantest like, peck on the cheek you've ever yeah. seen. So well, it's like. Very 70s Britain, though, I suppose. I suppose uh, yeah, maybe like, we were a bit more repressed. Sort, back sort then. of middle classes as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's funny at the end, in the end credits, I don't know if you noticed that she um, has the credit with the permission of the yes. RSC. I noticed that. Yeah, Royal Shakespeare, Shakespeare Company. Company. Yeah. Um, weird. So maybe that was the first film she did. The film has some really weird dialogue, like some really funny dialogue uh-huh. from back then, like some quite witty and funny dialogue, but also some like there's a scene where. The characters are at a pool, and he notices this uh, this woman. Oh, it's um, Julie. Yeah, it's uh, Olga Georges Picot or something. something. Yeah, yeah, and he's she's she, like the hottie, isn't she? She turns out to be the one that he's like supposedly having an affair with, yeah. despite the fact he can't remember. She's doing like a photo shoot, isn't she? That's right. I and there's like loads of sort of equipment in her apartment that like suggest like later in the film that she's like a model or something. Yeah. But um, but basically, yeah, there's loads of like camera related sexual innuendos in the scene. Like he's like, well, I'm trying to think of an example. Of I remember, he he, I remember he's, something he's like, walking I'd like down. To give her some exposure. Or yeah, it's a, it is. Yeah, <laughs> but they're all to do with like cameras, and they're all a bit like weird, a bit weird. Uh, some straight, slightly strange phrasing. I mean, for a PG film, it's it's kind of like quite borderline in some yeah, parts. Definitely. I, I mean, thought I honestly thought it was. A, I mean, I've had the DVD sitting on the shelf for a while, so I haven't checked out the certificate and to see a PG, especially some of the scenes it with her. Does actually like, say what the certificate was? Was it yeah, like um, it wasn't here back in, in the here, day? Yes, yeah. Whether what or not it was cut or not, I don't know. But I uh, mean, she's in her underwear at one point. Uh, yeah, like, and you can see quite a bit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or maybe she just thought, oh, it's not the only kids aren't going to buy this film, so uh, yeah. just, just leave it as a PG, <laughs> uh, as an A as it was then. But uh, I really, I mean, we can't really talk too much about it because it is sort of. Goes into spoiler territory, but, yeah. let, but maybe let's talk about some. Um, I've got a couple of things there that aren't really spoilery. And this, this, we're going back to the dialogue. There's some really funny uh, dialogue in it. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's a scene earlier on where um, he's talking about this guy he works with called Frank Bellamy, and he comes to the house and he's not been invited. By oh, is this the sort of bounder type, sort of yeah. glutton type fella? That's yeah, that's right. I he's he's like uh, later on. There's a scene where he's supposedly been playing pool, pool and he's yeah, like snugger, he's had yeah. a bet and he doesn't like Can't gamble remember. and stuff yeah. with uh, Pelham. Uh-huh. But um, they're talking about how unpleasant he is now. Nobody at work likes him and everything. And he's like, I wouldn't have invited him around. Like, why did you? And she's like, well, I didn't invite him. Uh-huh. And he says, and he says, let me tell you something about Frank Bellamy. He's got mental B.O. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just a great way of saying uh, nobody likes this yeah, guy. exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. But yeah, because yeah, he comes back from somewhere and he's been there like for hours and stuff. And she's not there right. to him, as it were. Yeah. But uh, yeah. There's and, a lot of stuff about the... the the marriage and the fact that it's kind of like a bit on the rocks and they're trying to like sort of uh, you know reinvigorated and stuff yeah um, oh the kids I want to murder the kids the kids were like kind of bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can't they're, they're, like, yeah it's kids kids in 70s it's films it's fairly typical sort of like uh, child actors like, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there was another line they quite liked where they talked about the takeover and they said if they get hold of us they'll eat us without even a burp <laughs> I missed that oh that's fantastic <laughs> But, but uh, I mean, the the premise is like is quite good. When it gets to an explanation for, it, I'll not give anything away. No. But when it gets to like, there is a scene towards the end that kind of gives an explanation for why there's two of them. Mm. That's a bit kind of improbable, and yeah. like, it's a bit sort of like really. But it doesn't really matter because if the film's not about that, you know, as long as you can suspend your disbelief and enjoy it for what it is, yeah, it's... the explanation doesn't really matter a great no. deal because at the end of the day, it might not even be the case. You might just be imagined or yeah. And that's the crux of the well, film, uh, yeah, is, is, he exactly. is he going nuts? Or yeah. is there actually two Pelhams? 
Um, but the final scenes in which he encounters himself, yeah. and he comes face to face with the other him. That's quite well done, isn't it? It's quite well, well done. Well, you obviously yeah. can see a body double in, in, in parts, but even yeah. so, yeah. Because there are scenes where it shows you yeah, when he's confronting him and he's saying, like, you know, who the hell are you? But, like, you look exactly like me. It, sh- it shows you Roger Moore, and then they've shot the other guy, the double from the back. back of his head. Yeah, but I'm sure, is there a bit where you've seen both the faces together? Yeah, when he comes in through the door. And, that's right. And you can tell, obviously, because of the edge of the film, that, like, you know, digital effects obviously not being a thing back then. No, it's a very obvious obstacles. Join yeah, uh-huh. between the two of them, and one of them actually looks a lot brighter than the other one. I'm right. not sure if that's done on purpose, or it's just the effects. Just probably, yeah. The it's probably the, the Blu-ray probably unfortunately makes that look yes, better. I was just about yeah. to say that, that I think HD has made it look worse. Yeah. So you can really see the joints. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a really clever uh, thing in that scene. I love the fact that because of all there's all these scenes with the psychologist performing and psychologists yeah. telling them to be an individual, and he's mm-hmm. telling them you need to like. Wear a, like a, a loud suit or a different tie to what you normally yeah. would. Be yourself. Do take a few risks. Like you know, be an individual. Uh-huh. And obviously, in the last scene when he confronts himself, because he looks quite different from his normal attire with exactly. a pinstripe suit, yeah, and a smart tie, and that, and he's uh-huh. in the kind of loud suit with like a gaudy tie. Uh-huh. The other guy's like, I would never dress like that. Like, and the, uh, the yeah, wife's exactly. like, who like, is oh, this guy? Yeah, it's like it reinforces everything they're saying about it not being him, but uh-huh. being an imposter. Yeah, so he's like. On the back foot, like, and you, but then you're you're totally on his side. side aren't you? Exactly, like, no, yeah. how's he going to get out of this one? Sort of thing. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's for the the last uh, the last scene um, when he confronts himself is really well done, and it is quite disturbing mm-hmm. that like by this point in the film, often there's like a bit where he kind of just misses the guy. Yeah. And he's just seen him, and he's like, "Oh, you were just here, sir." Like, yeah, just, and then they run. He's chasing around. I just told you this. Yeah. So I've just you just told us to do this just uh-huh. five minutes ago. And he's like, and he's running around looking for him. Uh-huh. But then when he finally reaches up, catches up with him at the end, yeah, and and they come face to face. It is kind of quite poignant in a strange mm-hmm. way. It is. It's a good, um, sort of good payoff in that respect. But uh, definitely, there's I, a few psychedelic shots and stuff, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, like, very six, late the 60s, end. 70s. Yeah, because there's another car scene. Uh, at the end, where the kind of where the the kind of seemingly malevolent Pelham is following him, yeah, and you see like close ups of his face and there's like weird light light yeah. and stuff. It's quite there. Uh, I think that was used of, quite heavily in the trailer as well. Yeah, it's got quite a bit of visual flair. It's like well, did you watch well the trailer? Directed. I didn't. I actually. thought Roger Moore, Roger Moore, Roger Moore. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. So I guess he. Uh, and and then, you know, you complain like, about trailers these days, giving everything away. Mm-hmm. You watch that trailer; it's all there, like just yeah. about, just about, yeah. It's amazing when you look back. It's, I mean, I have, I do remember like watching the trailers for some cult films and like you know, like some weird sort of like uh, B movies, horror movies, and sci-fi films and stuff. And there are a lot of them that give like a hell of a lot away, including the ending. Yeah. You think, what really? Uh-huh. Did you really put like one of the most important bits yeah. right in the trailer for everyone to see? Um, but no, I mean, despite having some slight reservations, I watched it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's definitely a film that wouldn't necessarily be easy for a lot of more modern audiences to watch. No. I think we've covered a lot of those films on the podcast really. Yeah. Over the uh, over the last few years. We've talked about a few that like you know, it's not they're not gonna be for everyone. No, um, no. Um and this is like the epitome of that. Yes, it's it's definitely a sort of but, niche market, but it's a good little film. It is. It's like, you know, it's well acted, it's well put together. It's quite funny in places. Yeah. And quite unsettling in places and yeah, yeah. And like I say, the the fact that there is this kind of reveal that's that doesn't necessarily make too much sense. It doesn't matter because it's more about your, your sort of ex, like your expectation and uh-huh. the kind of thrill of what's about to unfold. It's, mm-hmm. It does that well, and uh, that sort of thing um, 
just doesn't really matter yeah. Lynx just an entertainment little film a nice little bit of swing in London <laughs> ah, indeed yeah but uh, alright I'm, I'm really glad you liked it, no, it, was, um, it was I don't good, think it's yeah. changed your mind on Roger Moore but for this one I oh, think you, you've given the thumbs up for this like one like I say I don't hate the guy no I no no that, you know you love one of my favourite actors but I think that some of his TV roles um, were probably better than some of his movies for me but certainly he's excellent in this yeah yeah definitely yeah, definitely so a thumbs up from me yeah. fantastic okay what we've got next um, a simple plan. A simple plan it is, and let's move on. So now we're moving up to 1998, mm-hmm. and uh, director Sam Raimi's Simple Plan, mm-hmm. or A Simple Plan. Um, I think when this came out, this is a complete different uh, avenue for Sam Raimi to go mm. down. Yeah, not a horror film, not a. Well, there's a, comedic elements in it, but yeah. it's like a straight story, but quite well told. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, you've done non horror before, but I know what you mean. There was nothing fantastic about it. It's yeah, more of a, it's very restrained for him. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of delves a bit in noir territory, really, doesn't it? It does, yeah, totally, totally. Like, um, a, more, like a modern noir film. So uh, we've got Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton, Bridget Fonda, and Brent Briscoe. I think they're mm-hmm. the. the, the Basically, the leads, the main, yeah. main leads, yeah, and the the ones that the majority of time yeah, are spent. Yeah, they're on, they're on screen. Obviously, we're doing this because uh, Bill Paxton passed away recently. Yeah, one of the reasons that we picked this one. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a real shame. I think that um, you know he's quite a modest bloke, really, but he was quite a talented actor. You know, and such a great character actor in so yeah. many like so many classic films and so many quotable films where he had great lines in them as well. Should a, we go into a synopsis? Yeah, we're going into a synopsis. Yeah, um, so. Two brothers and their friend discover a crashed plane in the woods that happens to contain a fortune in cash and a crew full of corpses. They form a plan to hide the plane and keep the money for themselves, but what starts out as a simple plan soon, oh, begins, to... <laughs> yeah, <dude. laughs> soon begins to spiral wildly out of control. That's yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Trouble ensues, as always. Exactly, yes. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> um, so uh, it starts off, I mean, you, the characters are pretty well delineated early, mm. uh, early on. Mm-hmm. So, um, Hank is, uh, let's have a look, Bill Paxson, Jacobs, Billy Bob Thornton, and the pals, played by, yeah, Lou's, played by Brent Briscoe. Mm-hmm. Now, Billy Bob Thornton's character and Brent Briscoe, they seem to be sort of, I wouldn't say joined at the hip, but Hank seems to be the outsider out of the yeah. three, doesn't he? And that's yeah. just by virtue of him having a job. That's and maybe right, a little right. bit of an education They're kind as well. of like a bit more slackery, aren't Yeah, they, they're really? a bit slackery, hillbilly-ish. But Billy Bob Thornton's character, it seems to suggest that he's like, you know, maybe he's got like a younger mental age, or he's got learning difficulties. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, um, he's so definitely he's, disadvantaged. Yeah, put it um, that way. Yeah. Um, so the film starts with like narration, um, where he's basically where Hank is talking about uh, when he was just a kid. He remembers his dad telling him what he thought it took for a man to be happy. Mm-hmm. He says like simple things, really: a wife he loves, a decent job, friends and neighbors who like and respect him. And for a while there, almost without hardly realising it, I had all that. I was a happy man. <laughs> and then so, the film starts. And then yeah. the film starts. Yeah. So it basically, it sets everything up in the, with that opening, is that the kind of moral of the film is be glad about what you've what got. What you've really. got, yeah. Because uh, as all these types of films tend to go, you know, when there's something big at stake, like a lot of money, trust is hard to come by. And that's the kind mm-hmm. of theme of the movie, isn't it? Is that they start out like a closely knit group. And start quite moral. Yeah. Like, I mean, at least Hank does. Yeah, and yeah. his wife. Uh-huh. Um, maybe the other two aren't quite so much. I mean, not that they're amoral. They're just like maybe... 
Well, the wife always seems to be sort of like giving them the nudge all the time. Definitely, saying, oh, I do. more this so is, as It's almost like uh, Lady Macbeth sort of character, almost in yeah, some, well, some respects. That's a good point, actually, because um, she, you know... I wouldn't say exactly say it's pulling the strings, but she's definitely sort of leaning on She bit, in, She yeah. influences them quite yeah, heavily. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it definitely does show that they, like Hank's quite moral, and he has when they find initially find the plane, you know, he does have a lot of kind of like a quandary about whether yeah. he should turn into the authorities, and there's a lot of discussion about it. And you know, it, he's not necessarily uh, on board. In fact, at the beginning, doesn't he say he's going to keep the money in his house, mm-hmm. and and he's going to like basically um, wait it out. Wait it so out. He's going to be yeah. like caretaker for the money. Uh huh. Um, and maybe if nobody claims it, they'll they'll then take it. But if if there's heat on it, they'll give it in. Yeah. I mean, in, initially he doesn't even want to like keep it. No, no, no. Uh, but they kind of do like sort of wear wear him down a little bit, don't uh-huh. they? And he eventually says, "Yeah, well, maybe we'll keep it, but we're gonna wait to see if anyone turns up." Yeah. To, uh, and obviously the plane is full of dead bodies, so and instantly the fact they don't tell anyone about that is like dodgy ground. Yeah. But as we as the film starts to wear on, you know. They start to do dodgier and dodgier <laughs> Very dodgy things, yeah. I mean, um, you could compare it uh, to a very old film, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, the Humphrey uh-huh. Bogart, Bogart film. One, seen yeah. that I haven't seen it, but I'm aware of it's it. It's very, yeah. it's very much along a similar, like similar line, right? You know, about like the fact that the the friendship is between these two characters is tested <sighs> by the fact there's like I was tested just just watching it. I was shouting <laughs> at the screen when Billy Bob Thornton does something when the policeman turns up in the car. And I was like, oh, for, what's he doing that for? Because I'm so used to seeing Billy Bob Thornton, not that I've seen all his films by any stretch, mm-hmm. but he's usually a pretty cool, calm and collected character in the yeah. movies. And in this, he's playing something totally different. And it's like, he seems, one minute he's like, he knows what he's doing. The next minute I say, like, what the hell is he doing that for? I was like, mm-hmm. ah! But I suppose his character is, he isn't supposed to be quite all there. True, true. Um, but they all seem on board one minute and then they're not the next. Uh, I mean, so it's very much a story about like the American dream gone wrong, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, you know, you kind of get the feeling that like Bill Paxton's character has like worked hard all his life. I mean, he works in like a mill or something, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, like grim. and and he's kind of like got a fairly steady job, but it's like you know, it seems like a grind. Yeah, he's not exactly like rolling in money. No, and no, they've no. got a baby on the way, don't yeah, they? Yeah, so this is like an opportunity to, to secure nice, the nice future. Little, yeah, and then the brother lives at this sort of dilapidated farmhouse, mm-hmm. so it'd be it'd be good. He for really him. wants to uh, do it up and restore it to its former glory because when they were a kid, they had like a seemingly like a kind of vibrant farm. Yeah, but since the dad, like idyllic. Yeah, since the dad of was it the dad who passed on? I can't or? remember now. Anyway, they, since like um, they don't have the farm anymore, it's went like to rack and ruin, and he's, yeah. he's wanting to restore it and kind of because it seems like he's quite attached to his child, and maybe he was like happier then. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of wanting to, like, you know, kind of live in the past, I guess. Mm. Um, but the performances in this film, I really think, are really good. I mean, Bill Paxton is always good in everything he's in, but he's he is like a fairly great everyman sort of character. Yeah, but it's good this because he, he gets a leading role in this one, and, and yes. it's not often he got that. Uh, Back then. Other than yeah, uh-huh, certainly. I mean, obviously, he directed himself in Frailty, didn't he? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, which, which I think was a couple of years. Later, yeah, yeah, it? but. Uh, Usually he's a good, good film if you haven't checked it out. By yeah, the way, if you if you're listening there, absolutely. But usually he's a really solid supporting character in, mm-hmm. in, in most of the films that you see. But uh, well, he did get a chance to shine in this one. He did absolutely. Um, because of the fact that we do kind of start out very much with him, like you know, we're we're kind of on the same page as him. Would because because he's the kind of moral centre. Absolutely, yeah. You identify. You can easily die, identify with him. And the I fact suppose. that he does initially not even want to like keep the money, and then he gets sworn down. Well, maybe we'll keep it, but we'll wait to see if the authorities come like knocking. Uh-huh. Um, and then 
there's a pivotal moment where like um they're confronted with something that could very well derail the whole thing quite early on yeah and he makes a snap decision that is like terrible uh-huh and everything just spirals out wildly out of control from there doesn't yeah, it yeah it does um but uh I'm not too familiar with Brent Briscoe, who plays uh, Lou. Have you seen him in other things no, before? No, I couldn't Couldn't pin him down. Well, he's like, pretty, besides the guy who... Well, I don't get too much... I know, he can't have got the... It's hard, uh, it's hard uh-huh. to, But that decision I was talking about that he makes, it ultimately like threatens them a lot more than just having the money. Yeah. Um, the, the, When that happens, he does make a stupid decision that he can't take back. That's like really quite... Quite horrible. Uh-huh. But then shortly afterwards, Lou starts to get a bit paranoid about the fact that Frank's got the money at it. Yeah. Hank, sorry, he's got the money yeah. in his house. And he starts to get a bit paranoid. They're trying to cut him out, doesn't he? And it leads yeah. to a confrontation between the three of them that doesn't end well. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's like not even that far into the film, really. No, it's not. Um, it's not. There's a lot more story to go after that. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I mean, Bridget Fonda is really good in it as well because she's. Although she seems to be kind of like, you know, quite moral and very much the same as Hank. Like you say, she does kind of nudge him more yeah. towards doing some very dodgy things. Totally. And she kind of becomes a bit scary by the end almost. Like, <laughs> But um, so you, you probably, we were talking about the Treasure of Sierra Madre. You could maybe liken it to something like Shallow Grave as a more modern equivalent. Yeah. That has like some similar themes in it about betrayal. And, and paranoia you know, and, and everything. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, as the film draws on as well. You mentioned Lou, um, sorry, not Lou, rather, um, Billy Bob Thornton's character, yeah, Jacob, Jacob. Yeah, he becomes a kind of like a bit more erratic, doesn't he? Like you never know what he's going to do next. He becomes a bit of a time bomb. Between the two of them, they're just loose cannons, and it's like you know, yeah. like when you see, like say, if you watch some like Heat or something like that, with and you said, oh, we don't want any, you know, you want tight, solid guys, and like, and these are the like the exact opposite of that. Mm. They're just you just can't not not they like can't be trusted, trusted, but you just that can go off any which way yeah and exactly. uh, that's what had and me Jacob, sort of like and cringing is like uh, he's like a time bomb basically yeah. isn't he they, they know for a fact he's going to derail the plan mm-hmm. leading to some like some quite ruthless like uh, things happening later in the yeah. story but he, he's a bit of a drunk as well isn't he especially after like uh, everything that happens he starts to get like wasted quite often and they're worried he's loose, his lips are going to get loose and he's going to yeah. kind of say something to the wrong person he's in, yeah in the bars and stuff like that yeah no. so you know, as as um, as it sort of uh, gets on, things become so horribly desperate that it's not even about keeping the money anymore. It's just about trying to, like, you know, not get arrested or stay just alive. Just get through it. And when the authorities come sniffing, and one of those, and one of the authorities is actually dodgy as hell. Yeah. And he's not, you know, a good guy. He's not like a sort of, you know, he's what he's somebody who's like in it for his own ends. He doesn't want to mm-hmm. just arrest them. He, you know, possibly wants the money for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it just like uh, becomes beyond like a desperate situation, and it's not even a case of trying to salvage the money; it's just trying to salvage their lives, basically. Totally, yeah. Just, just get out of it. Get out yeah. of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm trying to think who who plays that. It's, he's well known. It's Gary somebody. Can't remember who he is now. No, never mind. But I haven't said that. Has Sam? This was 1998. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a similar film that Sam Raimi's made. I'm trying, I'm trying to think. It's fairly sort of distinct in his yeah, filmography, is. isn't it? Very much so. It's no dark man. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, 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 for some reason, I don't know why I've managed to avoid it this long. Mm. Nearly 20 years. I saw it, uh, I think maybe in like the early 2000s. I was interested in seeing it when it first came out because I remember reading reviews of it. Uh-huh. 
Um, but I don't think I saw it until a couple of years later on. Um, it's always on late on night TV. on telly and stuff like that. It's a sort yeah. of all, a late night programming, but it's definitely worth checking out. I think that it's, um, you know, it's definitely going to be reminiscent of something you've already seen. I yeah. think everyone's probably seen a similar sort of film. But what it does with it is quite good. It's just a dif- different version of, t- of, of of that story that you've seen. It hits certain beats that you'd expect to hit, but yeah, mm. it's just But the performances it's are excellent. Absolutely. And um, by the end of the film, you just you just end up with your head and your hands in a good way. Like, <laughs> thinking, yeah. oh no, why did, why did you do this and that? And like... <laughs> If only this had happened or something, but it, but you are on the on the same page as the characters, and you kind of do feel quite sorry for them, especially kind of what happens to um. The, I mean, because all of the relationships are tested, some in more ways than others. Yeah. But by the end, like you know, nobody's happy. Basically, well, yeah, <laughs> it has it has a bravely dark ending for like a kind of well, not mainstreamish film. I mean, uh-huh. it's, Apparently, a lot of different people were attached to the project before Sam Raimi was like different right. actors and. Uh, this is one of these ones that had been sort of yeah. lying around and waiting mm. to be produced, made. It's, uh, uh, I didn't realize that. Like if you if you look up the sort of history, it had some pretty interesting people attached to it. Some quite unusual people attached to it. We think really. All oh, right, right. <laughs> it wouldn't, wouldn't wouldn't have been yeah, the same, but yeah, it's kind of like low key. Mm-hmm. but really good at the same time. So. We never really mentioned uh, the sort of setting. It's like a snowy. Little town, Fargo-y type. Yeah, and uh-huh. it was compared to Fargo upon release, but it's visually it's very nice looking. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of scenes where you see crows on the branches. Yeah, and the crows are quite often like the cameras like trained on them while they're sort of squawking away. Yeah, and I almost felt like that. I almost felt like towards the end of the film, like all the scenes of the crows, it was almost like the crows were kind of commentating on it. Was yeah. like they were kind of judging them for <laughs> what they were doing. <laughs> That's me reading too much, you know, but it's, it was just kind of funny. It was almost like the like a little gag. Ah, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Um, but yeah, and it's been on. Actually, has been on TV since we watched it yeah. as well. Typical. Like, how how does this keep on happening? You know, we 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 quite often we'll talk about a film. Uh-huh. We'll think about doing it for the podcast, and then I'll be on. It happened with the Running Man. <laughs> yeah, it did. It happened with loads of um, loads of all the films. House. I mean, yeah. I think, actually, I think we decided to cover that because it was on TV, but we had only a few weeks before talked about so doing, about it. doing it. Yeah, and then we were like, "Well, it's on, so it might as well." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get it recorded. Yeah, but yeah, it's. I mean, it's uh, like I say, it's, it's uh, probably you could accuse the film of not being original and that, but it's the setting's good, like the characters are good. It's well, it's well it's made. Well done, yeah. And it's just a, like a tight thriller. It's like the running time flies by for me, anyway. That's one thing with uh, well, certainly the, these first two films we've discussed. They're all nice sort of ninety-minute films, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, I think maybe a little bit longer with um, simple planning. Maybe it was like actually, was I think, it? I think it's I think it's just shy of two hours. Is right? it? All right, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. <laughs> but it's been a while since I watched it. It has, yeah. We've taken it around a while to get around this episode, but no, I think that. Um, it's one of those ones where the runtime zooms by for me, right? Personally, and that's why I, why I enjoyed it. Right then, moving on. So, last but not least, is Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. That's mm. not set in Budapest. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't even know where to begin to describe this. Yes, film. well, I think that's an issue with Wes Anderson in general. Is he's a very unusual director. Yeah. I mean, if you're not familiar with his films, they're all quite sort of charming and quirky. Mm-hmm. Uh, comedy dramas, essentially, but like ones yeah. with unusual settings, dysfunctional characters, and like unusual plots. Quite often, um, often they focus on like kind of uh, unconventional characters and misfits uh-huh. and like losers or dysfunctional families or 
dysfunctional extended families and friends and things. Would you say it would fit in more with the sort of the broader sort of uh, Coen Brothers comedies? Mm, to, a, to, an to, extent. to an extent, Cer- yeah. Yeah, certain ones of his films kind of verge in that sort of territory. Yeah. They're, they're an acquired taste, I would say. Right. But certainly... But easily you acquired like... if you get into them. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you like them, you, you'll really like them. The sorts, the sorts of films I think are a bit marmite. I think you kind of love or hate them. Yeah. I can't really see many people walking away from Wes Anderson film thinking it was okay. Uh, I think you're going to be really invested heavily in his films. And uh-huh. I think the more of them you see the more you appreciate. But I think also a lot of his films are... These, the more you watch them, the better they get as well. I think yeah. it's like there's so much in them. So, so much to take in. There's, there's often... A, and that is an issue with this film, but we should <laughs> yeah. do a synopsis first. Anyway. Well, if, if you can. Um, well, I've, got a, I've got a one... I've, job, got right? a, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a one line, but uh, yeah, you, yours is much better, I bet. So, um, Zero is a young boy who gets a job as lobby boy at the prestigious Grand Budapest Hotel. He forms a bond with the hotel's eccentric concierge, Gustav H. When Gustav inherits a priceless painting from one of the hotel's most esteemed guests, their worlds are thrown into chaos. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough, yeah. Because basically the, the majority of the film is, is the idea that Gustav gets set up for a murder. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, what, what yeah, it's just yeah. about chaos after that. Because um, Gustav's a, like, he's like basically a highly eccentric concierge who like really prides himself on being... Yeah. Kind of like a sort of... Uh, he's like the face of the hotel, isn't he? He's the he? face of the hotel, but he's also sort of prides himself on being kind of like a sort of... like a, a, Almost like his job is a lost art. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of like the last of his kind. He's like the last great kind of hotel concierge, and he's like takes everything really seriously. But he's also... <laughs> but he also has a sort of penchant for um, for sort of sleeping with older women. All the older women, yeah, who go there year <laughs> after year. <laughs> and worming the way in, into the wills. Yes. Aye. Which is where the story begins because of the fact that he ends up inheriting this priceless painting uh-huh. because he's in a relationship with this old dear who's one of the most esteemed guests of the hotel. This is uh, Madame D. That's who's right. played yeah. by Tilda Swinton, totally mm-hmm. unrecognisable. Yeah, she's like age makeup <laughs> yeah. uh, on her. Um, well, we should say that uh, Gustav's played by Rafe Fiennes. Of course, yes. Uh, in a fantastic role yeah, for him he, and totally unexpected as well, I think, at the time. This. Yeah, really good. <laughs> so, I mean, the film's kind of like a fantasy take on the writings of this guy called Stefan Zweig. Right. And Anderson discovered him by accident. Like, he was browsing a bookstore in, like, uh, Paris. Uh-huh. And he found one of his novels and he... He said as soon as he read it, he was like, wow, this is like my new favourite author. Mm-hmm. And he got really into his work and he read all his books. So this isn't based on one of his novels. It's kind of an amalgamation of stuff to do with his life and his novels. Right, okay. And that's kind of like inspired... So he just used that as a stepping off point. Yeah, yeah, basically. So I guess that uh, Gustav is kind of a little bit of, of uh, Stefan Zweig, but also a little bit of some of his characters too. Right, yeah. He's like a man of impeccable taste, isn't he? He is yes. basically. You know, he wears like the sort of finest kind of like aftershave. And the, yeah, the, yeah, the cologne and there's particular cakes he likes and things yeah. like that. And, he's, and just... he's like a man of like sort of standards, and he basically uh-huh. prides himself on being, you know, very refined. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, he, but he has this unfortunate uh, habit of kind of uh, <laughs> philandering with all the women. Yeah. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. So the setting of the film is like the Republic of Zabrowska, so it's like obviously a fictional yeah. sort of area in uh, well, Eastern definitely Europe. Definitely Eastern Europe, yeah. Lots of snow yeah. and stuff like but that. But not Budapest. No, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um I've always enjoyed like the approach in novels and films where you have a character telling a story to somebody and yes. then the audience and then it dissolves into the story 
and then you have them coming back to like discuss key parts of what you're being told. Because what you have sort of set up, it, it, it's it's the older Zero telling his stories to uh, Jude Law, forgetting the character's name now. Yes. Uh-huh. But even that is set up by a a bit about a girl reading the book, which I think yes. oh, that's so complicated. Basically, <laughs> yeah, at you the do beginning, it. At the beginning, a young girl visits a monument. Yes. Which would seem to be a monument to uh, Stefan Zweig, the uh, the author. Right. Because um, there's a there's a society in the movie called the Society of Crossed Keys. Yes. And this monument is covered in loads of keys. Yes. So I mean, I think actually, the the guy whose monument it is is probably a character in the film's universe. Mm. But I think it's based on Zweig. Right. And and basically, this Society of Crossed Keys is kind of like all these like refined hotels have like an, an organization. Uh huh. Where and they all the, look out for each other. It's all the concierges. They're all, all the and, and concierges one, are one all bit. Mates. He basically calls in all the favors, and one phones the other, phones the other, phones the other, and then to they get all Gustav out of a yeah, out of a bind. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So so basically, it starts off with this young girl <laughs> reading the book, The Society Across the Keys, which is like an, a fictional book. Yes. And then it melts into the story of like uh, older Zero telling relating it to. To Jude Law's yeah. character, uh-huh. telling them all about him and Gustav's adventures with this yes. pin. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's it's complex, but basically it's well done. Yeah, it is. It's it's very multi layered. The so film. By the time you look at the hotel when Jude Law's inhabiting it, which I presume is probably set in the sixties or something like that, yeah. it's all really dilapidated. Then it flashes back to the way it was when Zero first started, when it's, and it's lush and mm, fabulous and busy. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is that. Um, the the film is although the film's not is is very much about the painting and the fact that like loads of hijinks ensue when they're trying to protect the painting and keep uh-huh. it out of the sort of murderous family members' hands who've come to like Adrian Brody yeah, son, yeah. Adrian Brody plays a character who's come out of the woodwork to like to try and inherit like uh-huh. the old woman's fortune yeah and then he finds his plans are thwarted by the fact that they nick the painting I mean actually yeah. it's rightfully his because she does leave it to him exactly but. He's not kind of taking. There's another character knows this who turns it round on them. The the guy James Bond, Matthew Almerick, or whatever he's called. He's he's a chef. I can't remember now. Yeah, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's just the 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 plot's kind of labyrinth, but it all makes sense when when you watch it all. But I mean, what we should say is the amount of famous people in this film. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, Anderson's films have a lot of like great cameos and minor characters. Yeah. But this one is there's some really so great stuff. You're always going to have a, a Wilsons, yes. more, multiple Wilsons. So you got Owen and Luke at least. Harvey Keitel is like a fellow prisoner because Almost. Gustav gets arrested for yeah. for the murder of the old woman. Yes, which he obviously didn't do. We mentioned that earlier. But uh, Harvey Keitel is instrumental in his escape from prison. Absolutely, he's like a kind of uh, grizzled like a uh, convict who forms an escape plan. Mm-hmm. There's Willem Dafoe's in there as a Willem hitman. Willem Dafoe's like a hitman who's, who's he works for Adrian Brody's character and he's trying to like uh, bump off Gustav. Yeah, uh, and his character is brilliant. Yeah, his character is fantastic. There's a scene where he's stroking a cat, uh-huh. and Jeff Goldblum's in it too, and he plays the oh, lawyer. Oh yes, yeah, he's the lawyer. He's yeah. the lawyer who's who's executor of the old woman's estate. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the movie, well, near the beginning, uh, they all gather to hear what he has to say about mm-hmm. who's getting what. And obviously the painting is the big thing that everyone's waiting to hear about. But there's a scene later on in the movie where, like, <laughs> where um, Adrian Brody's character is basically saying, like, you know, we wanted this just to go simply and it all, we just wanted it to be all done with. Why are you complicating things? Because uh-huh. he basically says, you know, we need to, like, authenticate what's what. And this is the scene where he's stroking his cat. But you, th- I thought at the time that it's Willem Dafoe's character's cat. Yeah. It turns out to be Jeff Goldblum. So it's just 
because he doesn't tell him what he wants to hear, he just chucks the cat <laughs> out, out the window. window yeah. <laughs> and you see it. Rawr! Yeah. <laughs> and he just looks like really downtrodden and small. And he's like, that was my cat. Uh, yeah. You're not going to mess <laughs> with that character, though. And then there's all these scenes where he's, car- he's carrying the body of the cat yeah. in a bag. <laughs> because he's forced to go somewhere after the meeting and he has to go and claim the cat's body. And there's loads of gags of him carrying this cat's corpse. Oh, totally bizarre. So, uh, where were we up to? Oh, yeah, Bill Murray's in it. Yes, he's one of the other concierges yeah. who forms the Society of Cross Keys. I think Bob Balaban, who's in, he's a screenwriter and uh, he's in Close Encounters, is in it as well. Mm-hmm. There's just so many d- different people in it. I think the there front is, cover yeah. of the DVD box is about a picture of about 20 people who are in yeah, it. Just 20 about 20 quite prominent yeah, cast members, uh-huh. yeah. Um, there's the whole look of the film. Obviously, it's got all the trademark left to right pans. Yes. Or, or traveling sort of camera moves. Shots. Yeah. That's... Always going left left to right nearly, and whether that's marching through the hotel, mm-hmm. across the um, the sort of frozen wastes when they get chucked off the train and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, there's another one. Um, what do you call him? Fight Club. Ed Norton. Ed Norton, yeah, he's in yes. it as well. <laughs> it just, just keeps going on. One thing I forgot to mention is that one of the things that's in the background, but it's kind of important, is that. It's on the cusp of World War Two, yeah. So the Nazis um, are just starting to kind of like impose upon. But the they're Eastern not Europe. Nazis in this. The no, they're, they're not. Yeah. They're just like German soldiers. Yeah, officers. But they're, they're just a, yeah. But there are like a few dodgy sort of soldiers who are kind of like basically like misusing their authority. Yeah. A bit. And there's an early scene in the tr- in the on the train where like Gustav's defending Zero. Yes. For being an immigrant. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's one of those ones where it cuts over. He's got a big black eye and stuff like that. It's fantastic. <laughs> But the thing is, is that um, it foreshadows like uh, a scene later in the film, like yeah. at the end, which is which is like quite an in- instrumental part of the film. Mm-hmm. We'll not spoil that, but it's like it foreshadows something quite poignant and important later. Um, but that's kind of like apparently it was a big feature of Zweig's writings, as he like he was writing about Eastern Europe before it was spoiled by war, mm-hmm. and um, sadly, apparently, he died quite tragically because. In real life, um, him and his wife took their lives. They actually um, killed themselves oh, right. by overdosing because they were afraid of what was going to happen was gonna because happen. of Nazi rule. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, see, so he had quite a sort of grim life, but he, but um, certainly, he seems to have been a bit like uh, Gustav in the way he was maybe a bit of an eccentric and kind of viewed himself as maybe, I don't know, like a kind of last bastion of like refined mm-hmm. kind of uh, people Definitely, like, true definition of old school yeah <laughs> there's a great scene where I f- yes we, we I forgot to mention Adrian Brody's character's name he's called Dimitri yes there's a bit where, where he's talking about the fact his mother and him were in a relationship and he says if I learn you ever once laid a finger on my mother's body living or dead I swear to god I'll cut your throat <laughs> and he's previously always got, he keeps on calling him a faggot throughout the film right and he's like I thought I was supposed to be a faggot and he's like you are but you're bisexual <laughs> class I really find like doing a comic turn in this one it is superb mm, um, he is brilliant in it, like. uh, it uh, he comes out with a line something along the lines of somebody shaking like a shitting dog and I was just like that's fantastic <laughs> it's great it's just the way he delivers it it's uh, really good the way good. he delivers a lot of the dialogue so it's many things strange. to talk about in this film. I'm never going to get through them all. The aspect <laughs> ratios, it keeps jumping. It does, yeah. And, but for no apparent reason, it just does. Mm-hmm. My de- my Blu-ray player didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to watch this film for me without smiling. I think the Wes Anderson's films are just they've got this like charming sensibility about them, it's so unusual. But uh, you know, there's so many eccentric characters, and 
He uses like paintings for sets, like um, the times, you know, like early in the, the beginning in the intro. Yes. He uses like sort of still paintings and uh-huh. sometimes like models and like quite primitive looking things. Oh, like the funiculars, the, the, the sort yeah. of little, yeah, and it looks yeah, like sort of, yeah. like a carriage going up the hill. Yeah, uh-huh. Fantastic then. And, and it's, it just adds it's a sort lot of Monty of charm. Python about that, actually. Yeah, you it know just adds I mean? a lot of charm to the film. It does, it does. Um, and you know, and that's not even like I'm like a sack on fight, help myself, but uh, smile when I'm watching them, and that's not even when something funny's happening. Even the gunfight's good. Yeah, that's a great gunfight. I mean, you got gunfights, <laughs> you got chases, you got prison breaks. Um, it's just ah, oh, so much to take in. And it's like, like a kind of adventure um, sort of movie, I guess, in some ways. That uh, is, a crime yeah. caper, uh-huh. a comedy, um, bit like not really a fantasy, but. In the way that it's quite fantastic, it in is terms the, the, of the way the way things that happen, things go on. Yeah, totally yeah. fantastical. I mean, if you've seen some of Wes Anderson's other films, like for example, you know, The Life Aquatic um, with Steve Zissou with the Bill Murray film, mm-hmm. that like a lot of it is quite is quite sort of normal, and it's like character interactions and stuff. But then there's like the quite fantastic element of the fact that there's like crazy undersea creatures that like don't exist in real life yeah and there's like a really mad action scene where pirates try to take over the boat Mm -hmm. and you can expect those sort of like veers away from like uh what you're expecting whereas anderson movies you can expect something a bit off the beaten track Mm -hmm. and something a bit out there to suddenly kind of seek into something you're not expecting i mean this film does that quite well it does i mean again i suppose because it's so overwhelming like that some people that could turn some people off i suppose Mm. Because it is so eccentric and kind of unusual, yeah. it's not going to be for everyone. No, no, but I think for the majority of people, I think it would be. Yeah, I mean, um, it's because, kind of, because the humour's there. And, and and some bits are side-splittingly funny. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the bit where the uh, the accuser of murder, and he just sort of looks really kind of like... Um, he, he, well, actually, it's him who says it, isn't it? They come to speak to him, uh-huh. and he totally jumps the gun, and he's like, right, you, you're accusing me of a murder, aren't you? Uh-huh. Like uh, the, it, she's died under suspicious circumstances, hasn't she? And then just pegs it. And then she just runs off up the stairs on that. <laughs> and that's it's brilliant. just this like long shot of him like disappearing Run, yeah. further into the hotel. That's fantastic. But it's the way they just turns around, turns tail, and runs off so uh-huh. quickly. And, and then all the soldiers just start chasing him about it. <laughs> it's that. I think there's a, that sense of humour appeals to me a lot. Definitely. So, um, definitely, sort of like hits the buttons for me. Aye. But um, no, it's just. You can get it for dirt cheap as well. Yes, you can. Um, like I picked up for about a five on Blu-ray. A lot of his films um, are so so easy to, like, to, to get for like dirt cheap on DVD, but if you really love his films, there's some amazing Criterion editions yeah. of his movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Lindsay's a huge fan of his films as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we... In fact, I think it was you who suggested the review, but I think Lindsay was quite enthusiastic about us doing it as well, because like, she's... I mean, we've we've got like loads of books about his movies but and things. You've watched a lot more. Is this the most accessible out of all the films? Hmm, it's hard to say. I, that's quite a difficult question. That I think that... Um, it probably depends on the viewer, I would say. I mean, it's got an 8.1 rating on IMDb, so people oh, love right. the film. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe... Uh, a lot of I think a lot of people came to him through the Royal Tenenbaums. Yes, which is kind of like a dysfunctional family movie from uh-huh. like uh, earlier in his career. Gene Hackman, yeah, um, and uh, Ben Stiller and Co. Mm. I mm-hmm. think that's probably the most widely seen one. Right, but I think it probably depends on um, on your kind of preferences because obviously the setting. Some people, I guess, you know, some people were turned off by historical films of or like films with unusual settings. It's or something. almost like how would you. It is like almost like a fairy tale setting. It's just mm. 
Well, it's, it's like a fictionalized it's, it's version a, of Eastern it's way, Europe. It's the way Americans would probably say Europe now. You know, <laughs> yeah. all sort of patisseries and and sort yeah. of um, castles on mountains and things like that. Yeah. Well, I feel I've kind of done done this review a bit of a disservice by not mentioning like uh, Zero's girlfriend. Agatha is quite important. Oh, Saoirse, part of the, Saoirse uh, Ronan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's quite an important part of the story as well. Yeah, she, yeah. And there's quite a few funny scenes with um, Gustav sort of like uh, talking about how, how amazing she is and he's like, don't flirt with her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so he's keeping him in check, isn't he? Yeah. No, he's quite the womanizer as uh, Riff finds in this one. Fantastic. <laughs> he, he doesn't discriminate really in that way. No, no, he, do, he doesn't. <laughs> as, uh, as Adrian Brody mentions in being bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's well, like... You say at one point, I sleep with all my friends. <laughs> But no, it's just yeah, it's a proper sort of feel good movie, I suppose. It is, it, yeah. It, like, it's kind like, of old fashioned adventure. Kaper, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but everybody's really good, and everybody's on top of the game. Fantastic. Uh, he's definitely got an eye for the cast and has uh, Wes Anderson. Definitely, so, yeah. and if you like it, you should. And if you've not seen any of his output before, definitely check out some of his other films. I mean, um, you were talking about how many of his films I've seen. The only one I'd never seen until recently was Bottle Rocket, his debut. Right. And that was really good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an unusual one, and I think that's that's like a, a good. That's maybe one of the more accessible ones if you're just looking for something that's like a kind of yeah, because it's like it's kind of quite character based. It's mm. you know about like two two like uh, sort of young guys who are like criminals who are basically like uh, planning a kind of uh, robbery or no hiding out after a robbery, and it's very much back back and forth between characters and a lot of dialogue and stuff. And it's that might be a good one, a good jumping off point, uh, yeah. like a good kind of accessible one for uh, if you find out to find out if you can like his movies or not. Oh no! It's the sort of film I kind of see like a younger audience sort of necessarily appreciate appreciating. Uh, that's that's the movie being a bit of a disservice to to some younger people who might be listening. <laughs> that's, that's not going to appeal to everyone. But no, no. You need a certain sort of mindset. Well, it probably pops up. Probably pops up on film four and stuff by now. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, you can always catch up with it. Certainly. So, um, very, very good movie. So, I would say it's been three out of three. It time, has right? been three out of three this time. It's been fantastic. Now, I'm going to catch you on the on the hop here. Mm-hmm. Next episode, Lone Wolf and Cub. Yes, I think so. Two partner. Yeah. We've both got the Criterion box set. Mm-hmm. Um, Just going... to give you a bit of background, it's long since been uh, a favourite of me and Fraser's. Yeah. And we discussed the Lone Wolf and Cub films um, from pretty much like not knowing each other very well yeah we? yeah it's, it's... we've gone to all martial arts films and Sonny Chiba and then Samurai films and and then we started talking Lone Wolf and Cub and it was a series that we've both liked for a long long time uh-huh. since the VHS era yeah <laughs> and now it's and been released and the laser released. disc and, and the, the DVD yeah, and... I have it on every single format yeah. known to man uh-huh. I've, I still own them all and I actually think it's, there's been some merits in owning uh, different versions because of the fact that the Animago versions had those great liner notes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, any, but anyway, so it's uh, the samurai movies from the 70s. Yeah. Um, based on the manga by Kazu Koike uh-huh. and uh, Goseki Kojima. Um, and the probably if that, well, it's funny because uh, the Cannes Film Festival started this week. Mm-hmm. One of the first films to get shown is the new Takashi Miike film, which is another Chambara epic, which I've never heard of before. Blade of the Immortal, yeah. which is again based on the manga strings. Yeah, exactly, yeah, and that looks absolutely nuts as well, according to the trailer. So, uh, yeah, it might be quite timely that we do this. But yes, yeah. uh, maybe we'll try and review that one in the future. Possibly, yeah, because it's supposed to be good. I've yeah, um, uh, and s- since I'm a bit of a manga and anime fanatic, and I've actually read both, I can give you a bit of a comparison of, <laughs> of like uh, you know the comic, to the original the movie. to the movie. Yeah. yeah. So the six films in in the Lone Wolf and Cub series. So we'll break it down. We'll break it? it down into three and three. Um, 
So yeah, if anybody's familiar with Shogun Assassin, tune in. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. Okay, that's us done and dusted. Well, uh, we'll catch it very soon. Honest, Gov. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon.